Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for September 12th, 2014. The... They may take our lives... Edition. I am William Wallace Plotz, the editor at large of Slate in Washington, D.C. On this week's show, President Obama outlines his new strategy to fight ISIS in Iraq and Syria. Is this war? Then, do Republicans have a women problem in 2014? Or do Democrats have a men problem? Ha ha. Good question. <laughs> Right, Dickerson? <laughs> you got it. Then Scotland votes for independence. Should Americans support their desire to throw off the English yoke once and for all? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And we'll have a Slate Plus segment, a very boozy Slate Plus segment that we did about, I don't even really know what it was about, but it was really boozy and fun. It was truly cocktail chatter. It was really, it was like its, its own version of cocktail chatter, but boozier, except John didn't have a drink. And if you want to join Slate Plus, get all the extra goodies, the extra segments, go to slate.com slash gabfest plus or email me directly at david.plots at slate.com. Slate senior editor Emily Bazelon, you heard her voice over there. She joins us from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. And John Dickerson is right here and resplendent. As Am I always resplendent? resplendent. Yeah, I really like your tie. It's very oh, crisp. thank you. Hi, John. Thank you. I want to call out two more live shows that our Culture Fest friends are doing. So as you know, we're all doing the Super Fest in San Francisco. Yeah, we have that sound effect. <laughs> you heard that Volo stuck it in. Did you hear? He stuck no, it in. No, I didn't. He did. Oh, man, great. that's awesome. On October 5th in San Francisco. But shortly after that, the Culture Fest is going to be in Los Angeles on October 8th. Slate.com slash LA Culture Fest. They're going to be doing a live show in Los Angeles, which is going to be super also, and they're going to do a live show in Boston on October 20th. And tickets for that go on sale on Friday at noon at slate.com slash Boston Culture. Although Slate Plus folks, if you go to Slate Plus, you can get those before Friday at noon and get it with a discount, 30% discount. Slate.com slash Boston Culture or slate.com slash LA Culture Fest. On Wednesday night, President Obama announced his new strategy against ISIS, the terrorist group that has taken control of major portions of Iraq and Syria. The U.S. will continue bombing the group. In fact, will expand its bombing of the group. We'll dispatch hundreds of advisors to train Iraqi soldiers and Syrian other Syrian rebels. We'll enlist Saudi Arabia to serve as a training base for those moderate Syrian rebels. We will not be working with Bashar Assad. We won't be working with the Iranians. We won't be sending ground troops. The main play seems to be trying to enlist the world and in particular other Sunnis to fight the Sunni extremists of ISIS. So the president got mocked for having he had no ISIS strategy a few weeks ago. Now he has one. John, why did he come up with this particular set of options? I mean, this essentially was the strategy he had, which is we could have made up his strategy, you know, two years ago, which was going to be that there would be no, no boots on the ground isn't the right phrase for it, because we'll have boots on the ground. There will be advisors and there will be special operations and stuff like that. So there will be no like 101st Airborne, no no invasionary forces going in. We knew that was always going to be the case of anything, really. We also knew that he'd try and get as many coalition partners as possible, whether that coalition is made up of, you know, Europeans or NATO or Sunnis or whoever. His view has always been the more the better. Because in the Middle East in particular, they are terrified, rightly so, that any U.S. action, because the U.S. has the big bombs, but also the convening power, it has to play a role militarily. But it doesn't want to be the only one playing because it immediately sets up the confrontation of being sort of the West in a war against Islam. And that causes all kinds of problems. It both turns it into a, a religious fight, which draws in more fighters, but it also makes it hard for 
allies in the region to kind of get on the U.S.'s side. So all of that ended up happening, basically. Now, what he has decided to do that he was very much against a few years ago is is trying to arm the free Syrian army. The linchpin of this plan and the most tricky part of it is that it's going to be kind of a one-two punch, U.S. from above and on the ground, the Iraqis and then the free Syrian army. Well, that's tough because those two – well, first of all, the Free Syrian Army, nobody really – I mean the whole reason the president was against arming them in the first place is because he wasn't quite sure if you give them the arms whether they're going to be really on our side. If those if they might get defeated, those arms would then go to ISIS. They were just very nervous about trying to back the Free Syrian Army and then also then relying on the Iraqi armed forces is, is troublesome too because it's not exactly a crack fighting team. You know, this has the air the, – the final Hobbit movie is about to come out but it's the air of the Battle of the Five Armies. You have the Syrian government's army. You have the Free Syrian Army, you have ISIS, you have the Iraqi Army, you have the Iranians playing a role, you have the U.S. It's, I'm expecting the Eagles to come in well, any minute now. You know, also you have in that cauldron, you have the conditions for bad outcomes and complexity and horrible unintended consequences initiating very quickly, things getting out of control. I mean, you know, it's like you put five drunk people in a room with, you know, one of them with a pistol, one of them with like a live wire, another with a chainsaw and say, okay, turn on all of your weaponry and then just sit still. Like there's a really good chance that somebody's not going to sit still and then the whole thing will fall apart. Emily, the president is sending 500 advisors. As I recall, we kind of advised some armies in that area, including Iraq's army, for 10 years. Haven't they had just about enough advice? What, what is it, the advice that we can give now, the training advice that we can give now that somehow is better and different and actually will, will have a long-term impact for the Iraqis? I suppose the Syrians maybe still don't – the FSA hasn't had our advice yet. Well, I mean I guess the facts have changed on the ground and now they have ISIS as this particular threat – in a particular place that has taken over some large swath of their country, and we can talk to them about how to dislodge ISIS. What I can't decide is whether I think the president was truly forced into this stepped-up aggression and involvement or whether we, the United States, are overreacting to the beheading of two American journalists. Those were tragedies, but does that really mean that this plan is going to make the region better off and more stable? Or are we acting because not acting is just starting to look terrible as opposed to, well, acting is actually a better option? The I think both can Good be question. True. I think both can be <laughs> true. I think there's a – clearly the polling shows that – I mean one way to look at the polling is that a year ago when the president argued – for some military response to the Syrian use of chemical weapons, 21% of the country was in favor of that military response. Now, close to 40% is in favor of ground troops to go after ISIS, let alone the 60-some-odd-plus that are in favor of military action. So the country has whipped right into sort of into line in terms of having military engagement. The only group that isn't in favor is 30 – those who are 30 and younger, 44 percent support, 46 percent don't support. The country is definitely pushing for this. I think the president does believe in the idea of a vacuum and this has been – in the administration, there have been people who have been saying this for some time that you can't have a vacuum in Iraq and in Syria because something will fill the vacuum and it will become a training ground for, for extremists and that has happened and I think they really believe – that you can't just let them sit there. And when he says that this is going to be like Yemen and Somalia, he's been basically doing a version of this, no, though not obviously on the scale, for many years. I mean, the, the sort of bombing countries that we have partners on the ground with. So it's in scale, absolutely. It's bigger than what we've done before. But in shape, it does have connections to those ongoing operations. And is the argument about Yemen and Somalia that things would be much worse there if we weren't bombing? Because certainly it's not like, oh, gee, look how well those countries are doing. They look really safe and secure. I think it's like the elevator pitch of the speech, which is this is going to be like these other two things that you may not have even heard about. And the fact that you may not have even heard about them is proof that we're able to contain them. I, I find myself – I am not an isolationist by temperament – I believe America has a distinct role to play in the world, and American military force is profound, much greater than the rest of the world's combined. But I am very 
alarmed at all this. First of all, Dick Cheney's in favor of this. So that immediately Yeah, but he's in favor raises. of much more than this. If you think back to 9-11 today, the day we're taping is the 9-11 anniversary. I don't know that there's any evidence that all these years of engagement and combat have resulted in a single good thing for that whole region. It's more unstable. It's more bad in almost every possible way than it was 9/11, since 9-11. So you have Libya, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Somalia, Mali, Iran, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Gaza, Sudan, Nigeria. We have engaged in almost all of those places. And I'm not sure you there's a compelling argument that our engagement has been better. Now, I'm sure the people who support it say, well, absent our engagement, things would have been worse. But that's also a counterfactual. We have competing counterfactuals. And I would love to try to say, let's not engage. There is this way in which we've, well, which problem- we've done this threat inflation with ISIS where there's this idea like you can't exaggerate the threat that ISIS poses to the United States or poses to the stability of the region. And I think, well, you can exaggerate the threat. I wouldn't want to live – if you lived in the area that ISIS is, it is, it is a horror show. It is terror. They are, they are murderers. They are thugs. They are the worst possible people. But – that doesn't always mean that we have to be the people providing the solution. Yeah, I think you make a good point. The The reason that, that argument hasn't won in the past, of course, is that the argument Dick Cheney and others would make is that if you allow your experiment to go forward, it gets too late by the time they you know, detonate a nuclear device in the middle of Times Square. It's too late to fix that. So – but that's you know, that's, just, the, that's like just such a stupid argument, John. I mean, ISIS does not have a nuclear device. They have no prospect of getting a nuclear device. I don't know. Well, They're not going to get a nuclear device anytime soon. So I think the, 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 the steps you, where you can block them from getting a nuclear device, you can do that. That's doable. I look forward to our negotiations with Iran and working with Iran, a big nation state where you feel like there is stuff we can do. But this kind of impulsive id-like response of there is violence. Americans have been victimized by the violence. People are doing horrible things to other people. Let's engage violently seems to me a, a very simple kind of response. I don't have a better one. It may be the best thing there is. I just – I feel not, differently well, I about Iraq versus Syria. I feel like maybe they could go in and route ISIS out of Iraq. But Syria just seems like a complete mess to me because if we defeat ISIS, then we prop up Assad in effect. And then there are these moderates in Syria, the elusive moderates who seem to only semi-exist and <laughs> – and be hard to find. Well, I think there are two things. I think there's one, whether there are groups of people in the world who wake up every day trying to find ways to attack and kill Westerners. We know those people exist. So arguing against the existence of those people and the fact that they have special and extensive plans for different and extravagant ways to kill Westerners, those things are all true. You can't really rebut that. The question is whether these responses to those things are helpful. You know, one of the leading generals in the war in Afghanistan and in Iraq said after all of this about a year ago in a conversation, he said, my response after 9-11 would have been to wait a year. That was amazing because this is a person who spent the last 10 years coming up with new and extravagant ways to kill jihadists in Afghanistan and Iraq. So like this was not a person who was a pacifist. The point was that all this killing was only minting and creating more enemies of the United States. It was causing lots of deaths and it was getting us stuck in this kind of rut. So I think that's a perfectly uh, reasonable place to stand. And I guess what I would say in the in the context of this current argument about the coalition where you're going to have Americans bombing from above and partners on the ground. It's been compared to the um, Sunni awakening in Anbar province in Iraq, which was a successful effort to – and now that area has been retaken in part by ISIS. That worked because we had Americans like totally embedded in the culture. We're paying off the the Sunni leaders in the area. It's the prime example of the success of counterinsurgency, this kind of – super hands-on, walking the blocks, taking off all of the armor off the cars, taking off the protective bulletproof vests, not walking around with sunglasses and looking like invading Westerners. That was kind of the total opposite end of the spectrum of what the president's talking about. So to use that as an example of how this might work also seems to be a little crazy. I I just can't – I can't even believe it. I have a 13-year-old daughter. For my daughter's entire life, we have been having a conversation about this – God-forsaken part of the world without 
any great significant U.S. interest. There's no reason for American men and women to die there. There's no good reason for it. There's no good reason for us to spend hundreds of billions of dollars in taxes there. Do people in ISIS want to attack the United States? Might they try to attack the United States? Sure, of course. And should we be protective around our border and watch who we're letting in the country? Yes. But the fact that we have oriented our entire national treasury, our entire policy around this for the past 13 years is just a catastrophic mistake when we should have been thinking about ways to deal with the peaceful countries that we want to work, to deal with China, to work with China, to work with India, to work with, with the Russians and the Europeans and South America and Central America. Like that's, that's what we should be doing. I don't, know that, just, China, I don't know that China's neighbors would be considering them peaceful these days. But. China is peaceful. China is a bully. It's a rising power, but it's a peace, it is not a country which is engaged in toxic warfare. At, at a grand scale, which the United States is. I don't know. Uh, last question. Emily, do you think Congress will play a role in this? Should they play a role in this? Will they I vote was going to ask it? you guys if you cared about whether they authorize this. It seems like they might. And yes, I think they should. I would like it if they wrote some relatively narrow authorization bill and passed it, both because if it were relatively narrow, that would presumably do more to tie the president's hands than relying on the old authorization of force in Iraq, which really has nothing to do with this. And the other reason I would like them to do it is I would like to see Congress step up, take some responsibility for war making and stop the president from just increasing executive power in this arena once again. But what do you guys think? Does this matter to you? Are they going to do it, John? It looks like they might, actually. There was a... um yeah, they should. I mean, they absolutely should play as much a role as possible, if for no other reason than to have the kind of discussion we're having here. There's a lot of free shots being taken. I hope they have a better discussion. In uh, <laughs> no, you know, in these in these debates, and there's also a way in which the public polling I mentioned earlier has created. We're, it feels like we're blundering into the same kind of binary weak versus strong way of talking about foreign policy that seems so unfulfilling during the years of, of the Bush administration where you didn't want to be considered weak and it was seen as a, an important goal of American foreign policy to be considered strong and nobody ever – there was not a lot of debate about what that meant. And you could argue both sides intelligently but those, those debates weren't happening. The one last question I want to ask you though, David, is given your feelings about the waste of all of this, why do you think that President Obama and all the people who work with him – including Joe Biden, people who came into office, presumably holding a view of the world roughly equivalent to yours, are they all totally delusional? Are they totally weak uh, need because of the polls? Are they how can so many people in this administration who generally shared your worldview get it so wrong? Well, I don't know that they generally share my worldview. It's not it is not, in fact, the worldview that President Obama has espoused for the past few years. He's certainly been a Well, he's reluctant, well, right? Also, he is getting briefings from the military yes. every single day and from the entire establishment of American foreign policy and national security policy is posits the idea that America's engagement in the world can have good effect and in this way. And I don't get those briefings and probably if I did, I would be persuaded. And also, there is enormous political pressure towards – action rather than inaction. Inaction does sound weak, and I don't have to stand for election or anything like that. So that's why. Let's move on to our next topic. It's September. It's an election year. So it must be time for a war on women. Actually, this phrase seems to have been shelved by Democrats, but the party is basing its 2014 election strategy heavily on turning out women, especially single women who vote overwhelmingly for Democrats when they do vote, but are not incredibly reliable off-year midterm election voters. So, John, just give us the numbers. What's the gender gap and uh, why do Democrats think they can exploit it? So in presidential campaigns, there has been on average a 15-point gender gap, but that gender gap shrinks in off-year elections. And so Democrats don't get the same benefit from women that they get. Now, some Democrats have been able to beat the midterm Curse. So Michael Bennett in 2010, which is sort of a template race for this, wins women by a larger margin than any other. As you may remember, 2010 was a very it's bad a Colorado year. senator. Yeah, but very bad year for Democrats. And so Michael Bennett, a senator from Colorado, in, uh, wins women by I think 17 points. Beats Ken Buck with women by 17 points and wins his race then by 1.3 points. So 
women turning them out, which he did. Ken Buck helped him as well, but by stressing Buck's views on abortion and really just turning out single women and suburban women in Colorado. And that's basically now what they're trying to do in every other state. The problem is that in some states, they're going to have a better chance at doing it than others. So, for example, in Colorado now, where Mark Udall is running for re-election against Cory Gardner, a member of the House, he's got contraception issue to talk about, and we can get, go into more depth about that later. But then also, Gardner was a supporter of a personhood amendment. He's got problems both on choice and on contraception, which gives Udall a big chance to talk about those issues. In other words, he doesn't have to just drum them up. But it's also certainly what Kay Hagan is talking about in the North Carolina race. Mark Pryor, not as much in Arkansas. I mean, he's talking about other things. But this is basically being talked about in almost all of the close Democratic races. Emily, what are the various strategies Democrats are using to make hay on this, given that they don't have a Todd legitimate rape Aiken running the cycle? The Republicans have not made the obvious gaffes. So what are the things that Democrats are going to push on? Well, I think the Supreme Court's decision in Hobby Lobby and all of the right-wing support for religious exemptions from covering certain kinds of birth control has really hit a nerve. I mean, I hear from a lot of women about this. This really made them feel like there are still a lot of conservatives who don't get it. And the fact that it was a fight over birth control and over things like whether the IUD is, in fact, an abortifacient, a, a causer of abortion, which people who use the IUD do not think they're having an abortion every month. They are not. I think all they that— They are not. What? It's not an abortifacient. Like, it's not an abortifacient, and that's certainly not how women imagine themselves using it. And so— and it's this incredibly effective, you know, in many ways, the best form of birth control for people for whom it's a good fit. So in any case, I think that has galvanized a lot of people and it's a problem for the Republicans. And it's really interesting to me that this push for over-the-counter access to the birth control pill is suddenly like a talking point of people like Cory Gardner in Colorado. In one sense, I welcome it and it's nice to see for once – support for increased access to birth control. I mean, one of the criticisms that the pro-choice movement, the pro-abortion rights movement makes against abortion opponents is that they never want to talk about birth control. It's as if it's like some other unrelated part of the discussion when, in fact, it should be crucial. So now you see politicians actually sort of making that move. What galls me, though, is that over-the-counter access is really not going to do much given the way insurance coverage works for birth control because in many states and for many insurers, over-the-counter access means no more insurance coverage. It means that the promise in Obamacare where there's no copay for birth control goes away. And it's as if there's like a big blind spot. I haven't seen any of these Republican candidates address that problem. So it seems opportunistic and very much half-baked. They want to inoculate themselves against the attack and then move on. And what we're going to see now going forward, particularly on this question of providing over-the-counter birth control, is two arguments. One, an access argument, because this kind of gets us back into some of the territory we discussed in the Hobby Lobby case, where when you talk about birth control, those who are new to the issue sort of just think it's the pill, right? And don't recognize that if you get some other form of birth control, you're not getting it over the counter. And so this isn't helping helping you. And then secondly, there's an economic component, which you mentioned is if it's not being covered, then that's a $600, so Planned Parenthood says, bill that you now have to foot. And so they're pitching this to women as also an economic argument. And they are happy, though, to have a debate with Cory Gardner and Tom Tillis and others about birth control, because when you're fighting on birth control territory, women voters, just your birth control, birth control, like they don't, you want to be fighting on your issues always, even if you're being fought to a draw, because if you own the issue and it's part of the debate, that's better for you. Now, the big question is- You mean is, the Democrats want to have Yeah, in fight. the same way Republicans uh -huh. want to have a fight over taxes or Obama or health care or- the Well, and the Democrats would rather fight over birth control than abortion because it's less divisive. Right. And the personhood bill also gets into birth control. Right. Because the personhood bill, let's just spell that out, if it really went into effect, would- in some people's minds, ban the IUD and ban certain forms of fertility treatment because you are supposedly killing embryos. Exactly. And so I think the Colorado race, both because a lot of the people running and involved in it 
are from the Bennett race, but also because Cory Gardner has a particular history on those two questions. And because Republicans think they have kind of picked the lock on this issue by saying we'll offer over-the-counter birth control. It's going to be interesting in the next several weeks to see how that all plays out. And the question is not whether this will work to the advantage of Democrats. It will. The question is whether it works to the advantage of Democrats enough to get the turnout that they need to survive in some of these races. And, you know, winning by 17 points among women, that's a lot. And that's not a gender gap thing. So gender gap is is the delta between Republicans winning men and then losing women. The losing women by 17 is just losing women by 17. Okay. But I want to get to that delta. I want to get to the delta force because this conversation is held only in the context of the Democrats' huge advantage on women and the Republicans' problems on women. Well, not if you talk to Republicans, it's but, not. But yeah, yeah. But, well, no, but in the, in the, Let's in the, talk ma- about in the mainstream media mostly. Aren't they which, wonderful? And maybe in Fox News it's not. But it's, well, aren't they important? But it's, it is striking that there is much less discussion of the fact that Democrats are getting killed by men. And there isn't the same, doesn't seem to be the same, panic in the Democratic Party to broify the party. They're not like, like, how can we get the scotch drinkers? You know, what, what about the cigar smokers? How can we get those folks in? There doesn't seem to be that same emphasis. And I wonder, do they assume that the men are gone? So that you're going for the where you can get the greatest bang for the buck. So the women are more likely to come your way. And they have an issue set that's easier to convince them. So with men, less likely to come your way. And there's no specific male set of issues. But shouldn't the Republican Party reach the same conclusion yeah. about women and just say, like, forget oh, these women, no, forget these they, issues, and they, let's just, like, more guns, they mo- more they, cigars, they more liquor. More. They, they vote. The, women turn out more than men, just in general, in, in presidentials. And there's some states where you can't write off women. I mean, the states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Ohio, all those states are all – the women are let's up try, for grabs. Let's do, it, let's do an election here. Let's try to write off. So men will vote with men and women will vote for women on the show and let's see what happens. So I vote that we do our next GabFest dinner at a big steakhouse. So let's, let's vote. I vote yes for that. John? No. No, you have to vote yes. Oh, you're okay. I'm sorry. Yes, yes. sorry. What are we, I don't understand the point. I'm I'm just just, what? The men are winning. It's like what, I'm supposed we write to off vote, women. vote against this? No, yeah. I think he's trying to say there are two of us and one of you, one and of therefore you. the male position right. will prevail. Didn't you won. Yes, two to one. There we go. Yeah, but I mean, you, but your point, David, <laughs> I win is anyway, also though. there are pockets of the Democratic Party who are trying to figure out why working class white men are not supporting the party the way they should. I mean, this is an old frustration, right? This is like blue-collar workers, the lunch pail people, those men. Haven't we – isn't this like an old trope? Yeah, yeah but it's – so it's an old – also an old trope that women are – women like the Democrats better. I just – I don't see why there's so much more discussion of the war on women than the war on men. Hmm. Well, because there are specific issues that get to women's reproductive rights and that's not happening with men. There's not a like – it's not like a big fight over prostate exams or something. Viagra or like the fall. Adams or right or like, you know, the Adams Apple Reduction Act or something <laughs> that uh, men would, you know, have to be up in arms about. So that's why part of why what's up here. Emily, on Wendy Davis, the Texas candidate, gubernatorial candidate, she obviously has gotten a lot of national press and she got more this week when she talked about her own abortion. First of all, it doesn't appear that she's going to win, that she has a reasonable chance to win. Is there a way in which other women candidates or or other candidates in nearby states are kind of annoyed that she's talking about abortion because it draws attention to an issue that actually is not so desirable for Democrats to be talking about? I suppose it's possible that maybe candidates like Kay Hagan or um, Landrew would feel that way. To me, it's just such a relief to have people be candid and explicit about abortion because the more mainstream it is, the more visible it is, the less people can get away with the false idea that they don't know any women who've had an abortion, which is just never true because we're still in a world in which one out of three women of between the ages of, I think, it's 16 and 40-something – have had abortions. And as long as that's true, it's better to have people talk about it so that the level of involvement that this has in women's lives and people's lives is clear and out there. So I'm not like a huge Wendy Davis person, but I give her points for this one. Let's go on to our final topic. Scotland votes next week on a resolution to seek independence from the United Kingdom if it passes. If yes, the yes vote wins. Scotland become a sovereign state with its own foreign policy, its own tax policy, its own military, its own social safety net. The resolution, which had been 
held as a long shot has in recent weeks gained momentum. Polls have it dead even. The bookmakers have it slightly more doubting that it will pass, but still even at least a third likely to pass. It would throw the UK into chaos. So the prospect of splitting Scotland away from the United Kingdom would be unbelievably complicated. There are nuclear weapons that would have to be moved. There are banks that have to be rechartered. There would be the question of like, is the pound, which has been the currency of Scotland and England and Wales and Northern Ireland, would Scotland still be allowed to use the pound as the people who seek Scottish independence would want? It has been arguably the most successful political alliance or national alliance in the history of the world, barring except possibly the United States, is the United Kingdom. And the people of Scotland are considering whether to get rid of it. So, Emily, why why do the Scots want to end this 300-year-old partnership? Well, I think some of this is an historical sense of throwing off the yoke, which Americans should be able to channel 1776 and have some affinity for, I suppose. And some of it's that, as I understand it, the Scottish public and the Scottish voters are to the left of the voters in the UK, and they would like a more generous welfare state and control over their oil reserves, bracket the fact that those oil reserves may be fairly depleted. But And they would like to get rid of those nuclear weapons. I will confess that I have been thinking about all of this through the lens of the television show Borgen, which is about Denmark. And I know that's like a kind of lame. But to bear with me for one second, that show is about being a very small power in a big world. And I feel like Scotland is flirting with that kind of role instead of being part of the bigger, more secure United Kingdom. And in some sense, it seems really too bad, especially if you think of Great Britain as like basically a source of some good in the world. Weakening Great Britain worldwide seems maybe like not such a good idea. But it does seem like the Scots could do this. They could probably be independent. They're not facing any real security threat. It seems like the main risk is a financial one. And one sort of imagines that in the end, that would work itself out because it would be in everyone's interest to have some financial stability. But do you think this is crazy, David? I think it's insane. There are these two competing strains, maybe the two dominant ideas on the globe over the past generation or this this idea of cultural nationalism, which sometimes manifests itself in religious identity and sometimes it's a nation like linguistic identity or geographic identity versus the force of global economic integration. And the Scots think they can have both. They think they're entitled to both. They but maybe think, they can. Why can't they? Well, because it's foolish to want it because the overwhelming evidence of the past 300 years in Scotland or in the United States is that when you have people who are basically peaceful, they, do, they don't have any, the Scots don't have any actual issues with the English or the Welsh. They, you know, they have minor things about sort of the policies are not quite far enough to the left. The nuclear weapons are a little bit too far north. These are not people who are going to war. These are not people who have profound hatreds that when those people work together and cooperate and are unified, they are so much more powerful. They can do so much more good in the world. They will all be more prosperous. And the places where you, we've allowed or where the fragmentation has happened are places that you wouldn't wish to live in for the most part and where, the, where it's led to suffering for the most part. But that's part. not true about Scandinavia. I mean, Norway, Denmark, uh, Sweden, Finland, they're all separate republics and everything is A-OK there. And there are little teeny tiny countries. So Sweden ruled Norway and Norway has, is independent of Sweden and that's been OK. That's been OK. That's been fine because Norway is incredibly rich. That has worked. I mean those splits happened a century ago. They haven't happened recently. I don't think Scotland will – I don't think it's going to head into total collapse or that the people of Scotland will suddenly be all be panhandling and, and you know, trying to clamor over the wall that, that England builds to keep them out. But it's just a shame that Great Britain – to my mind, that Great Britain is the greatest accomplishment of the last 500 years. It, it has been in force for good, even greater than the United States. It is its impact on the world, the British Empire's impact on the world. I do think this, John. You're, 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 no, I'm just you wondering whether all the Indian, former Pakistan colonies in the first think half of the century or the yeah. Middle East or Africa. Oh my God, yeah. Mm. I think the former colonies do think this. I think if you're Canadian, if you're Australian, if you're American, I think if you're Indian for the most part, 
You, what? You do think? Yes. I do not think that that is an accurate history of the British involvement in in India, plus Pakistan, plus Africa, plus Africa, plus the yes. Middle East. Yeah, I do think so. Anyway, it's because it's been this union. And also, I just don't like this kind of atavistic, let's, my distinct identity is that I'm a Scot. No, your distinct identity is you're a human being. You have lots of connections, some of which are cultural, some of which are geographic, some of which are religious. we're not making you be a of citizen which... of the globe because you're a human being. You're just, you're, you want them to have a UK, Great Britain affiliation instead of a Scot affiliation. Why do you get to decide that? I don't get to decide that, I, but I can wish for people to. You can judge it. I can judge it. Would you, if Texas wanted to be an independent state, it's been an independent, it was an independent nation. If Texas decided it wanted to establish its, itself as a state, as a sovereign state, would you think that's fine? That's okay. I mean, I don't know enough about what the implications of that would be. But if Texas could safely and securely and without financial ruin make it as its own state, well, maybe I would be sending fewer of my tax dollars to Texas. What do you think about this, John? I don't have a strong view. I think you, that, do you have any Scottish heritage, John? I don't. I don't, I don't think I might David from and I my, do. Uh, from my um, dad's side. My mom's side is Irish and German, and I think there's there might be some Scottish or Scots-Irish on my dad's side. I mean, it seems so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. It's like we want – okay, we want out, but you know, we still want to get the benefit of your currency. Can we still be part of the currency or, or at least the EU's currency? Can we be part of that currency union? Well, why can't they be part of why the EU's yeah. currency? I mean, I agree that saying like we get to still share the queen and the pound might be well, because a little it's, strange. It's so, but I mean the EU is just a larger European so, entity. It's so, so perverse yeah. to declare yourself like you want independence. We want independence from London so that we can subject ourselves to Brussels, so we can subject but ourselves Brussels to British is, economic. Is more to, to the left to than Great policy. Britain is. Maybe their policies. I'm plagiarizing the piece I edited by Eric Posner today, but um, maybe their policies are more in line with Scottish sentiments. Right. It's it is weird. It's Scotland. Being in Scotland is like living in living in Vermont or something. Its politics are well to the left of most of England's. And in fact, one of the strange things that would happen if Scotland pulled out of the United Kingdom is that British politics would suddenly pull far to the right because Scotland is this weight pulling the British Parliament to the left. I don't know. It just seems like such a cut off your nose to spite your face thing just to be like, I we don't like the fact that David Cameron is a prime minister, that there have these, been these sort of moderate labor governments. It seems odd. Well, I'm not judging that. It just seems like a big pain in the neck to me. Like, it's going to be a lot of effort and trouble and take up a lot of energy of people who might have better – and countries that just might have better things to do. Yeah. Yeah. The Quebecois wanted to do this and they, they've sort of lost their vim. They've lost their spirit for, for this in Canada. I'm glad they did. It always felt foolish for them to be seeking it too. Maybe I'm a Hayekian conservative. This is a, a union that has worked incredibly well. For 300 years. We're not talking about something that happened like for 10 years. It's not – this is not a shotgun marriage. This is a 300-year alliance and to throw yeah, it over – Yeah, but they cut off the head of Mary Queen fit. of Scots before that. Don't forget that. Even if James the first slash six then got to ascend the throne. He got to ascend the throne. They had Scottish right. kings. My god, Alex Ferguson, the manager of Manchester United, the greatest manager in – English Premier League, a Scotsman. I should have known there was a soccer angle here that's gotten you agitated. It really pains me at a very fundamental level to think that people choose this. I feel like people have to make an explicit effort to live with other people. Like they have to do it. And not doing it is a is a but cop why, out. But they're not suggesting that they burn Great Britain. They're just suggesting that they not live under the set of rules that they don't think are great. Isn't that – couldn't you argue that adds to more harmony? Because then you get to like you get to live under whatever rules and you decide, or you get to have the freedom of self determination, and then well, they have a significant amount of self determination already. Yeah, but should people be able to decide their own level of? Their, I mean, that would be yeah. No, I don't actually think so. I don't think I think the the clamoring for democracy in this case is not a good one. There's strong elitist reasons for these countries to stay together, and the elites that rule them should really push to keep them together and not allow the temporary swills of the moment, the the furies of the moment to overcome that. Hate populism in that form. I kind of can't believe they're really having this vote. I mean, I know they like planned it and it was all agreed upon, but it's just that part of it is where it seems like the elites didn't quite bargain for what they're getting. 
All right. Well, my Scottish friends. We shall see let us whether send Scotland us news. breaks David Plotz's heart. Yes. Send us a telegram after you vote. Let's go to cocktail chatter. John, when you're, you'll, you're probably, you're like a, I'm sure you drink scotch. You definitely must be a scotch man. No, I don't, I don't drink scotch. I, uh, no Langavulin, no Macallan. No, no. I, I did have some um, scotch recently at a friend's house, though. That was actually really good. I wrote it down. Aberlauer, that was, Aberlauer. It was really good. But I don't, no, I don't. I mean, to the extent I drink any brown liquor, it's bourbon. Well, when you're having whatever brown liquor, imagine if Kentucky left the United States and you had to pay high import duties on that bourbon, John. I would stick with gin, which is... What's <laughs> your chatter? Uh, uh, my chatter is... Um, yeah, thank you. Now that everybody's been informed about that crucial piece of information, they can go <laughs> quietly to bed without the normal kind of restless tossing and turning that... So my chatter is about Ken Burns has a um, massive 14-hour documentary that's coming out on Sunday. It's from the 14th, from Sunday the 14th to the 20th, 8 p.m. every night on PBS. I'm going to write about it, and I'm I'm only about halfway through watching it, but I would recommend. Oh, it. far enough. You can. Well, write no, I, I would for that alone. Hours. I would recommend that people watch it. The thing that struck me the most was the footage of Teddy Roosevelt. It's about Teddy Roosevelt, Eleanor Roosevelt, FDR, and I mean, you talk about a like bunch of people who span a huge portion of the American history and the American story at this time, where there's all this crazy conflict, technology and immigration, and but the Teddy Roosevelt footage, just seeing him like tromping around on the on the and the way that Burns does it really brings to life Teddy Roosevelt in this way that just I don't know maybe I just it's a weak spot for me but one of my favorite parts is we all know or we should know anyway that when Teddy Roosevelt was running for the Bull Moose Party he was shot while giving a speech in Wisconsin on the 14th of October in 1912 This is my favorite story about him tell the rest Teddy Roosevelt one of the great things that comes across in the documentary is I mean he was he was basically a killer he Enjoyed killing. He was unhappy after uh, he charged up San Juan Hill that he didn't get a disfiguring wound. He was nuts. And one of the things that comes across is, he, on the one hand, he was nuts in that way. And then on the other hand, he was nuts in his pursuit of breaking up political machines and in trying to make sure that there was no special privilege for the trusts. And so you have that old question of you need insane presidents and you just hope that the bad part of their insanity doesn't outweigh the good part of their insanity. So he's giving he's going to give this speech in, in uh, Wisconsin and Roosevelt gets shot and the bullet passes through his eyeglasses case and his 50 pages of speeches, which keeps it from doing more damage to him. But it still goes into his body, into his chest and then lodges there. And so Roosevelt goes to the up on stage and puts his hand to his mouth and decides he's not bleeding from his mouth, which means it hasn't punctured his lungs, which he knows to do that because he's been in these wars. So he then decides to go ahead and speak. And he starts his speech by saying, friends, I shall ask you to be as quiet as possible. I don't know whether you fully understand that I have just been shot, but it takes more than that to kill a bull moose. He then proceeds to speak for an hour. Like whispering sometimes, swaying a little bit sometimes. And as he reads each page of his 50-page speech, which has a bullet hole in it, he drops each page. And the members of the audience like run up and grab the pages. And so they become this wonderful totem of the moment. But then at another point in the speech, he opens his jacket and shows the sort of fist-sized spot of blood on his shirt. So he's sitting there still bleeding. What I love, though, is the scene, this whole scene starts with this man's voice, you don't know where it's coming from, talking about William McKinley, the 25th president of the United States, who was killed, which brought Roosevelt into office, telling him in a dream to go kill Roosevelt so that he wouldn't be the have a third term. I had never knew this. I never knew that that was what inspired this guy, uh, John Schrank, who had followed Roosevelt from New Orleans, which is the previous stop, had followed him all the way from New Orleans to go shoot him. And another interesting thing about Schrank, who was a saloon owner who sold a saloon and then became kind of an evangelical or a Bible scholar, his wife, one of the things that may have tipped him is his wife died in something called the General Slocum fire, which everybody may know about. I didn't know about. It was a ferry boat. 1,021 people died on this boat. It was the largest disaster in New York before September 11th, and it was the worst maritime disaster in history. Anyway, so that guy shoots him. They decide he's insane. He spends 31 years in prison. Nobody goes to visit him. Roosevelt finished the speech. Anyway, as we all know, that election, he split the vote with William Howard Taft, leading to the election of Woodrow Wilson. And I should finish my story by saying that 
Roosevelt died with the bullet in him. They never took it out because they thought it would be more dangerous. So he is buried. That's my favorite part. Yeah, that he's buried Glad with that bullet that. in him. Top that chatter, Emily Bathlon. I cannot. However, I was writing about Ray Rice this week, not about whether the NFL should have come down hard on him and the Ravens. I'm really glad they did. Um, this is, of course, for Rice's um, punching out and knocking unconscious his then-girlfriend, now wife, in an elevator at a casino hotel. What I was writing about was the decision the prosecution and the judge made in this case not to take Rice to trial and perhaps sentence him to prison, but to defer his prosecution with something called pretrial intervention in New Jersey, which means essentially that Rice will be under court supervision for a year and go to anger management counseling. And if he keeps his nose clean, his record will be wiped clean. But if he doesn't, then he could be prosecuted for the original crime. So I started my day of reporting about this thinking that that was a pretty outlandish light punishment for Rice. And I was surprised to learn from a bunch of domestic violence advocates and public defenders who I talked to that it didn't seem particularly surprising to them. Some of them were still troubled by it, given the act of real violence and callousness that Rice showed on camera. But they didn't feel like it was all that unusual for a first-time offender, even though this was a violent offense. And so I wound up arguing in the piece that Maybe for a first-time offender for whom there's some possibility of rehabilitation, this isn't a terrible outcome, especially given the fact that Janae Rice, the woman in this situation, is standing by her man. That doesn't mean that the police shouldn't have arrested um, Rice or that a grand jury shouldn't have charged him. But when it comes to actually deciding to go on trial and convict someone— The lawyers I talked to in particular were saying, well, you know, it really still matters to have a complaining witness in the courtroom. And yes, this video seems like a slam dunk. But when you think about how many different cases prosecutors are handling and how they make decisions about the very few cases that they bring to trial, because that's a very unusual outcome. If you don't have the woman cooperating in a situation like this, is this really the right case to bring to trial? I'm still kind of torn about this, but I ended up feeling like I was worried in the beginning that Rice had gotten off lightly because he was a star athlete. And I ended up feeling more in the camp of, well, if they had brought him to trial just because of all the publicity, maybe that would have been making an example of him, which is not something I think the criminal justice system should generally do. On the third hand, there is this video, and the video is so glaring and disturbing, maybe it should have stood for itself. So I'm, I'm kind of all over the place on this one, and if you wrote me an email about it disagreeing, I read it carefully and, and appreciated it. It seems like a totally reasonable second chance opportunity. I, I, in general, yeah. I think the idea of sending people to prison for first offenses of, of almost any kind seems like a mistake. You know, remorse and rehabilitation seem valuable. And my goodness, I mean, now, now this wasn't true before, but his, he certainly paid an enormous price for it. He didn't then, but he is now. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that's specific to him because he's a celebrity is that for him, having his record wiped clean is kind of irrelevant because this is going to follow him along forever. Of course, if he wasn't a celebrity, that would be truly meaningful. Anyway, it's just such a complicated one. Um, I really, really am torn about it. My chatter is about a movie I saw. I saw it several months ago at a film festival, and it's finally coming out. I don't think it's in wide release, but it's going to be released, and then it's certainly available in, on all the streaming services. It's called Fort Bliss. There's screenings next week in New York and in uh, Los Angeles or Burbank. And it's a story of an army medic played by Michelle Monaghan, the actress Michelle Monaghan, who has a child and an ex-husband who, with whom she shares custody of the child, and she is has to go back and forth to Iraq. She has service in Iraq, and it's about the incredible strain on her trying to take care of this child, deal with her ex-husband, decide whether she's very good at her job, decide whether how much of her career she needs to give to the Army. Does she want to seek to be posted stateside, even though she's such a great medic? It's a beautifully acted movie. It's a really moving movie. It's a really subtle movie. The child actor in it is stupendous. I can't recommend it highly enough. For, for a reason I don't quite understand, it hasn't been touted and lauded. Maybe other people don't like it as much as I do, but it's an excellent, excellent, very beautiful, tense and moving movie. Fort Bliss. Credits. So we just spent, uh, we just had the Slate annual retreat and it means we spent some time with Mike Pesca and that's exhausting to spend time with Mike Pesca. 
and you realize like it's you can't. Mike Pesca does. You just his, said it's exhausting. It's a joy to spend no, no, time with right, Mike Pesca. Refer- it is a joy to spend time with Mike Pesca. But sorry, I was thinking in the competitive context of the fact that Mike Pesca oh, brings the show of along course. and did does his credits, and his credits are so awesome. And I, you know, he basically glommed into, he like moved into Plot's territory with his credits. And I've been like, how can I compete with this? It's like trying to, you know, to swim with Michael Phelps or something. I can't do it. So I'm not giving up entirely on credits, but I feel like I'm going to go straighter. And instead, I'm going to talk a little bit about the people who do the show with us and say something meaningful about them and not make some joke, not make some stupid joke. You're not being mindful on us, are you? I'm being mindful. Yeah. So Mike Volo is our producer. Mike, I would point out to our listeners, nobody loves a new baby like Mike Volo. He's got a new baby. That guy, he, I would want Mike Volo to be my dad. He is just so engaged with his child. So good on you, Mike. Uh, Max Tawney is our intern. Max is a great intern. He's also editing a series of other podcasts for me that we're about to start airing about working. And he is doing such a great job with it. And he is so relentless and diligent. And if I had a position to hire for, or if you're out there listening, you have a position to hire for, you should hire Max. He's, he is fantastic. Andy Bowers. Andy Bowers is interesting dietetically these days because he's really given up everything. And I find it hard to keep my energy up eating all the sugar and like bread and butter. And the guy doesn't eat like gluten. He doesn't eat. He's vegan. He doesn't eat any sugar. And yet he has this incredible amount of energy. Well, maybe that's why you should stop eating the sugar because it's bringing you down, man. It's definitely not bringing me down. Totally is. is. Oh, yeah. The carbohydrates and the sugar. Bad, bad, bad. Get rid of that stuff. Are you one of those? Oh, my God. You're one of those people, too. No, man. It's all science, dude. Read it. Believe it. Know it. (sighs) Our show, page, it. our show page is slate.com slash gabfest. It has lots of links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash gabfest. Our Twitter feed is at slategabfest. Our email address is gabfest at slate.com. Please subscribe to the Gabfest on iTunes. Leave a comment and rating while you're there. Search for Slate Political Gabfest in the iTunes store. For Emily, the Bazelon, and John the Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We will be back with you next week. something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh ah oh, sorry we were looking for chumba casino that's right chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details